You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 157. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul, and I am in addiction recovery. How are you all doing today? As always, it is an honor and a privilege to have you here. I'm going to dive right into this week's topic because, one, it's episode 157, so another seven shows up, and you know how much I love those. Two, I shot this episode last night, and it seemed really convoluted and like just theoretical, and it was even difficult for me to follow as I was doing it. And so I let myself sleep on it, and I just jumped on my From Sobriety to Recovery account on Instagram, and up came a really cool um, cut of Joe Rogan talking to Steven Tyler, the lead singer and head frontman for Aerosmith, talking about his addiction. So I want to bring that up. And t- three, uh, why not just jump right into the topic? It's going to end up becoming 30, 45 minutes anyway. So let's just get, <laughs> let's just get into the meat of it. So today, we're guys, we're going to talk about your unconscious programming and how that has led you into addiction and how it can lead you into sobriety and um, on to your journey of addiction recovery. Our minds have been programmed from the moment of conception, from the moment our little brains could think inside the womb and the moment we started to have sense, sensory acuity where we could even understand uh, touch, taste, sight, sound, smell. Obviously, those are going to be limited in the womb. But at the same time, they begin to form. And from the moment that occurs, we are taking in data. We are taking in information from the world around us. We are inadvertently being programmed by all of this data, especially once we come out of the womb. And all of a sudden, we went from this dark, damp place into this bright world. Um, I often chuckle at the thought that the crying from the baby isn't because it's its first breath as much as it's like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> I was in this warm little area. Um, everything was good to go. And now I'm in this bright area. There's these weird people with masks and gloves and there's bright lights. And I want to go back to where I was. <laughs> Please put me back in there. Meanwhile, the mother's like, thank God you're out. So we begin to... The programming starts from that moment on of what the outside world is. And over the course of our lives, so many things happen that they, they stack upon one another. And this programming, you know, it can be seen as the five senses bringing you in data and your mind is just... Um, it's it's being organized by the unconscious mind mostly because there's just too much information for the conscious mind to take on. And then it becomes these pictures, these sounds, these smells, these tastes, these feelings inside of your mind. It becomes these pictures. It becomes these little movies. And then you talk to yourself about the things that you see in these little movies and pictures you have created from the external world that you have brought into your awareness. So you have your five senses feeding you information all the time, and then you create these um, these images in your mind, these little movies about them, and then you talk to yourself about them. It's like the untethered soul says, you know, you're constantly talking to yourself. You talk to yourself more than you'll ever talk to anyone else. It's non-freaking-stop. And 
that's not necessarily a good or bad thing as, as opposed to it is just, it is what it is first and foremost, but it's what are you saying to yourself about this programming? So when I see the Steven Tyler little blurb today and, and Joe Rogan asks him about, you know, being sober and says, you know, uh, what's, you know, what do you miss or what's something about it? And Steven Tyler's like, well, I know I can never go back because I can't stop. And Joe Rogan's response is, you know, that's, that's just who you are. That's, he asks, is that just who you are? You're just the kind of person who can't stop. And Stephen Tyler says, yeah, I, I just know I can't stop once I start. And I know what happens once I start. My kids don't talk to me. I get a divorce. I get kicked out of my own bin. Um, I don't know what Ben is referencing to him. Maybe it's just getting kicked out of his own world, his life. Maybe the bandmates don't like him anymore. Who knows, right? I mean, Steven Tyler's addiction is well documented. I think most of those rock stars from the 60s and 70s, their addictions are very well documented because they, they've lasted so long in the in the public spectrum, right? The light's been on them for so long. We've seen them go through so many different journeys. And they're a very good, um, I guess, you know, road markers for what long-term addiction can look like. Yes, I applaud them for being successful in a band and being able to, you know, drink and, and do the things that they did, the drugs they used, and still go up on stage and, and have some modicum of success. But for every band that's able to pull that off for 30 years, they're the ones who, there's the bands out there who didn't even make it past year one because they couldn't handle the the lights and the attention. And so when Steven Tyler's asked, you know, uh, if, is that just who you are? And his response back is, yes, it's, well, yeah, because your programming from the moment you came out on began to lead you here. If I look back at the programming that I took on it from the moment of, of coming out of the womb on, I can see some very distinct anchor points in my life that have become the columns that once I became old enough became the um, support structures for my rationale for using, for why I dove so deeply into the addiction world. So we're going to discuss this in in my regard and from my stories so that um, rather than being super theoretical about what it is that you might be experiencing and me throwing out a a plethora of hypotheticals, I'll just mention some of the anchor points I have in my life that I believe led me to the programming. And I've done a substantial amount of work on myself to uncover these. And in some cases, they were very apparent to me. While at the same time realizing that no one traumatic moment in my life was what led me into addiction. Right. I, I, I would love to say no one traumatic moment is what led you into addiction either. I might get pushback on that. So I'm not even going to try to have that conversation without you in front of me so we could discuss that. People could say, well, I was raped as a child or I was abused or um, I lost my mother or father to a, a, an insane accident. And all of a sudden they're out of my life. And that was it. That's the moment that everything went haywire. And as soon as I could get addiction uh, substances into my body, that was it. I latched onto those. While those moments in my life and in your life can be can be columns of the support structure for what ultimately led us into addiction. I don't believe that one particular moment is what ultimately flips a switch that says you are now going to find substances and become addicted to them. I don't think our lives are as simple as that. 
I think our lives are way more complicated. I think our unconscious mind is way more complicated. And because of the complication of this mind, because we know so little about how it, it determines um, how it's going to make decisions and how it's going to remember things, uh, we're really just flying by the seat of our pants when it comes to what we think our mind wants us to achieve and what it ultimately creates in our heads that we then externalize as actions and behaviors that actually give us our results, the life that we have. And if that itself can sound too convoluted, I'll dive into that a little bit more and make it simpler as we go through this. I'm reading a book right now called The Elephant in the Brain, and it's all about, I mean, right now I'm only maybe a couple chapters into it, so because I'm, I'm listening to it on Audible, and at the same time I'm reading it on Kindle so that I can take notes and I can copy and paste certain points, and, and I'm, I'm basically breaking this book down like it was like a senior thesis project <laughs> if I was getting a PhD. One of the cool things that immediately starts to talk about uh, whenever I first started is that um, that we have this we are we have covert agendas of our institutions of our medical system law of our education system of of all of our systems of all the institutions that run the world there's covert agendas for them and the reason why there's covert agendas is because humans are running them and the unconscious mind has its own motives and the conscious mind then um seeks to make those seem pure chaste um to have integrity the conscious mind seeks to rationalize what the unconscious mind is directing us toward. So the reason why there's covert agendas in our institutions, even in our addiction recovery institutions around the planet, even in you know the 12-step programs or refuge or dharma, there's, there's, there can be a covert agenda to this because humans are running them. Now, the covert agenda could be seen as let's get everybody sober and living a happy life, Right, but it doesn't mean just because it's covert, just because there's a hidden agenda in there, doesn't necessarily mean it's good or bad. It just we're just discussing how it exists. Right, something else that came out of the book, a quote by Timothy Wilson, is we are strangers to ourselves. We don't know what our brains are up to, but we pretend to know. Because our unconscious mind's taking in so much data, and because it it, it literally is witnessing, you know, a, a mother father child um, interaction at the mall, and it's seeing something about that, and it's determining things. Right, nothing holds meaning that we experience around us till it's it's brought into our awareness. Right, it's experienced. We touch, taste, sight, sound, smell it, and then it comes into our mind, and it's run through all these different filters and processes, and it creates this this image, this movie in our head, again, with visuals and, and sounds and feelings and, and smells and tastes attached to it. And then we talk to ourselves about that image, about that movie in our head. Sometimes it's, it's just a gif. It's just like this looping video that we just keep playing over and over and over and over again. And then we talk to ourselves about this image and, and gif in our head, and then that just further spirals us down to either a good or bad emotional state around that. That's going to shift your body language, and then that's going to, those three things, this internal movie in your head, along with your emotions, and then along with your body language, is going to spit out a behavior, an action. And then that in itself creates a whole nother loop. Now that's something else you experience. Now that's something else that your five senses are going to bring to your awareness. And this is happening every single second of our lives. So this programming that we're talking about today 
is happening all the time. And we don't understand as much as we would like to about how the human mind determines how it's going to program things. Sure, we know it deletes, distorts, and generalizes. We know that it runs through a ton of filters like time and environment and space and, and uh, our values and our beliefs and our opinions and our memories and our experiences. We know it has these filters. And we know that it deletes and distorts and generalizes them. So we know how the process is going, but we're not necessarily completely uh, in agreement about what the output of, of those processes and filters are. Why is it we see certain things a certain way? So when we start to ask ourselves, well, is it one particular moment in our lives that we experienced that then set us down this path toward addiction? This is why it becomes so convoluted. Because how, how could one moment be the defining moment? when other people have had similar moments and then they've gone off and gone the opposite way, right? We brought up my brother before. He doesn't know the extent of the addiction that has run through the family, but he knew it, he knew it existed. He knew that his father was in sobriety and recovery, just like I knew my father was in sobriety and recovery. I, however, knew more about what the family had gone through. And I heard that since addiction run through the family, if I happen to become an addict, it's in my blood. It was in my DNA. I was destined for this, so why fight the destiny? To me, I heard it as permission. He heard it as a warning. So he went off, got great grades, uh, didn't drink until his 21st birthday, got married at a young age, started that whole version of life, and he's, he's rocking life out. He's doing a great job. I, meanwhile, went over here and got myself mired in addiction for 22 years and was barely able to hold my shit together. Same, you know, very, I mean, obviously we, there was differences. We were raised in different houses by different parents and, and things of that nature, but same bloodline, same family line, and yet we both t- went completely different routes. This programming that's happening, right, this, these unconscious motives that we're not even aware of, the reason why this can be so theoretical when we discuss it is because every single human is unique in the way that they are that they are being programmed by the external world. And then once the external world gets into their internal world inside their head, they are then also programming themselves a certain way of experiencing these memories in their mind. We're all doing this. All right, once we make a decision that, oh, I had, you know, for me, let's just, let's, let's just bring this back to me like I said I would because this way I can keep it from sounding so theoretical and I can keep it sounding more factual and we, I can tell you stories about my life, and, and this might, this will help. I know it will. So, at, you know, um, four years old, we moved away from Oklahoma, and we moved to Denver, Colorado. So I was taken away from my family. I was always uh, hanging out with my grandma and my um, cousin Angel and my grandma Bunker. I ha- We had a very strong family unit. Aunt, Aunt Paula, Uncle Rob, we were there. Right now, all of a sudden, I get moved away from the family, and this creates a traumatic moment. I remember crying in the back seat. I I, I have a very distinct memory, right, of me sitting in the back seat crying. You know, I'm in the middle of the back seat, so I can see my mom's eyes in the rearview mirror. She's crying too, and she looks in the rearview mirror and she says, "Don't worry, we'll be back." And the reality of it is, is while we did visit here and there, we were never back the way I thought she meant. It became a traumatic moment to leave my family and move to Colorado. Now, a social psychologist might say, okay, well, that was it. 
you had a traumatic moment at four years old and you uh, lost your family. There was great trauma there, a great sense of loss and grief, and you never worked through it. And ultimately, that, that loss of your family values in that moment is what led you to addiction. Perhaps, but it's just one of the many things. Because moving forward from that moment, all the programming that happened, all my experiences that occurred in my life were built upon that moment that family is expendable or family goes away and that all I have is just the people in this car with me right now to count on. Right Then we go to Colorado. One of the very first memories I have of, of being there is meeting this kid. And we moved to a trailer park for like six months while we were figuring out our house. And the only memory I have of this entire experience in the trailer park is of meeting a kid with a Robbie robot. And we have, our tech is super fancy now, but back in the day, back in the day, having like this little robotic creature that could just, you know, spin around and like move its arms was pretty freaking fascinating for a child. Well, he had a Robbie robot. Pretty sure that was the name of it. And uh, I went inside his house with him to play with it and got lost on the time and didn't realize how long I had been inside this house. The parents started looking for me, couldn't find me. There was ditches and a creek and the whole trailer park. They started banging on doors. Next thing you know, like 20 different adults are running around trying to find me. And here I come traipsing out of this house like an hour or two later Sun's getting ready to come down, and I did not realize that the the shit storm I had started by not telling my parents where I was. Well, they sure as hell saw me when I came out of this kid's house, and next thing I know, I'm picking my own switch out, and my dad's whipping my ass all the way through the neighborhood till we get back to our house. From that moment, I see my mom crying. Now I have guilt. Because I brought her sorrow. I have shame because I'm getting my ass whipped all the way down the street. All these adults are watching this happen. And, you know, again, 1984, people got, or 19, what would that have been, 1981? Yeah, so I'd have been like five years old. Um, switching was very, very okay back then. So everybody pump their brakes if they're thinking <laughs> otherwise. It's just, it is just the way that it was, whether, whatever. It definitely caused me trauma. Right. So now I have programming of don't go into strangers' houses, tell my parents what's going on. Uh, if I lie or I get caught in something, a spanking will happen. Okay, there's some more programming. Now, is that programming what caused me to become an addict? Or did it just get laid upon the foundation of the other traumatic moment of me leaving my family? Now, to mention, there was happy moments, too that were being anchored in birthdays and things of this nature. So now you start to notice how the the programming is layered. So a psychologist could get a hold of me and say, well, you got spanked, and that caused you to uh, doubt whether your stepfather loved you, to doubt whether your mother would support you, or to see shame and grief in her face, and then never to want to bring her that again. All right. So now we've got very right different ways of being programmed. Right now, go on and you know. Let's just fast forward to when my mom gets the disease. You know, when I'm eight years old, she gets Crohn's. She almost dies multiple times. A few of them in front of me, and now I've got this 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 sadness. Like, oh my God, I already lost my mom. I've already brought her pain in the past from the switching, and now all of a sudden she could die. So when she comes out of that and she needs help, I'm the one who jumps up and I'm I become mommy's little helper. When her colostomy bag breaks and shit goes all over the place, I'm the one who helps her clean that up. Because right? I want to make sure that I can protect her. I want to help her. Now there's more programming. 
And these are just the traumatic ones. We're not even talking about the good ones that could be influencing it. We're just sticking with the traumatic ones because so often we think the traumatic ones are what caused us to become addicts. But all that's really happening is they're being layered on top of each other. One layer of sediment, one layer of dinosaur bones doesn't create oil. It takes thousands of years of, of this decaying matter, of this algae, of all of these different creatures to be, to be layered underneath the surface of the earth and then to be compressed and have pressure placed upon them long enough that it ultimately creates oil. One layer wouldn't do it. We need thousands upon thousands of layers, and then we need you know, just a ton and ton and ton of pressure in order for that entire process to turn it into oil. It's the same thing for us. One traumatic moment isn't going to create addiction in us. It becomes these layers, and it's become how we internalize them. The fact is, is that we process and filter. That's what our, we, that is a fact of the unconscious mind. It processes and filters. Again, the theory comes in when how is this processing and filtering creating our memories? How is it creating our experiences? And how are we anchoring those memories and experiences into a positive or a negative? Again, somebody gets switched and they see it as like, always tell your parents where you're at and they turn it into an uplifting moment. I turned it into a traumatic moment. It was still a switching, still leaving my family, or it was still having mom get a disease. Right, But from the disease came a very obsessive compulsive nature to try to control the chaos. I never knew when the bag was going to open. I never knew what condition my mom was going to be in on any given day. So in order to control this chaos, I began to begin form a lot of uh, habits. I formulated a lot of ways of trying to control the world around me that I thought was chaotic. I began uh, to organize my room uh, and clean it all the time. I, everything had to have its place. There had to be organization. I would, even the way I stored my transformers was highly organized. Nothing was left without there being some level of organization to it. As, I've got, as I got older, this organization became more and more intense. And when I got into addiction, and I would tell people how much I love to get drunk and black out, more times than I could remember, people would say, oh, I don't like to be drunk. I don't like to lose control. And my response consistently was, that's my favorite part about this, is that I lose control, is that I stop trying to be so organized, is that I tr- stop trying to, 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 uh, to hold on so tightly to a, an organizational system for chaos. Because our worlds, are, it's just, there's so much going on to try to squeeze it so tight that it's always organized, that it always makes sense. It's virtually impossible, and it's absolutely exhausting. Much like Pavlov discovered whenever he rung the bell to get the dogs to salivate, we too have cues in our lives that set off these habit loops, these feedback loops that we've created in our lives. We're all unique in, in, in that we don't know how the programming is taking place or impacting us later on down the road, right? So it's in it's obvious and it in it and immediate the actual moment that just happened, 
right? I have a traumatic event at four, I get spanked. I have a traumatic event at eight, my mom gets sick. I have a traumatic event at, um, you know, 10 or was it 12? Um, we, we leave uh, Indianapolis, we move to Columbus, Indiana. Another traumatic event when we leave Columbus and move to Daytona. Massive changes, the loss of friends, more sorrow and sadness than an emotionally unintelligent child being raised by emotionally unintelligent parents doesn't know how to organize. I don't understand how to handle it. So I get more and more obsessive compulsive. I get more and more, I mean, I can remember, you know, my high school years. I was obsessed with numbers. I, I began to collect baseball cards and, and it just the, the way that I got into this stuff wasn't like, oh, this is just going to become a normal hobby. Oh, no, 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 no. It became like this way for me to to try to figure out math and numbers and will this card go up or will that card go down or buy this comic book now and in three months something's going to happen that's going to double its value and I'll make $3,000. Like this is the kind of crap I was thinking about because I, I desperately needed to figure out a way to control the chaos in my life. Ironically, I chose something like baseball cards and comic books to make money off of because there's chaos in that too. So then I've spent tons of times trying to figure out the chaos of that. It's much like my sort of crypto. Uh, I get really into crypto because that's like I figure like there's somewhere in there there is there there is a pattern in the chaos. So you have been looking for patterns in your chaos as well. And we've we've brought about the metaphor, the analogy, of, if you will, of like how our lives is like this skyscraper. Skyscrapers are can go as you know as tall. I mean, at this point, it just feels like the only thing that's holding them back from getting taller and taller and taller is just money and and somebody's willingness to to build it, right? To be able to fill it. Because if you can build a building that tall, will they come? I don't know. In Dubai, the Burj, right? It's clearly humongo. You know, you think about um, the Petronas Towers out in Kuala Lumpur, humongously tall. You had the Sears Tower. I think they've renamed it. But for those of us who are old school, we will always call it the Sears Tower. You build buildings like this to put people in it. And if people don't want to get in them, then you're not going to build them. But our lives are like these skyscrapers. We are constantly building. And we don't have to worry about trying to fill it because we're in it. Our mind has no problem being able to fill up our life of skyscraper. Now, what are we filling it up with? Good memories or bad memories? Good habits or bad habits? And I'm going to acquiesce on the whole desirable, undesirable thing for certain parts of this conversation and just use straight up language here, good and bad, even though I'll be using air quotes when I say good and bad, because that itself is a subjective perspective. Your mind is determining whether something is good or bad. Other people's mind might determine that it's that that what you thought was bad is actually good or what you thought was good is actually bad. But it's their subjective perspective. You hear that I was switched at four year four or five years old for hanging out in some kid's house playing with Robbie Robot, you think, Oh my god, poor child and somebody else might be like, Hell yeah, shouldn't go into somebody else's house without telling your parents first. Right? Subjective perspective. So when you build your skyscraper of life, like just like an actual skyscraper is built, there's no one supporting column that's holding up the entire skyscraper. First of all, uh, you know, architecturally and structurally, that would just be an asinine thing to do because then somebody just goes in and knocks out one column and the entire damn thing falls down. It doesn't work that way. You've got safeguards and you've got, you've got tons of different columns. So if one or two or 10 go out, the skyscraper is still standing. There's time to repair it. 
in order for it to, to maintain stabilization. This is how I th- see our lives, and this is how I see the individual moments that we might be anchoring to why we had our addiction, when in fact it's just one of the reasons how the addiction occurred. My switched at four years old. Is that the column that created addiction? Right, leaving my fa- or leaving my family at four years old, being switched at five years old. Are either one of those two events the column that's that's supporting the life that led me to addiction? I don't think so. Mom getting sick at eight years old. Yes, huge traumatic event. Absolutely, absolutely, changed the course of my life. But was it, is it the column that supports the addiction? Or is it just one of the many things that occurred that was written on top of programming that had already been implanted into my mind? Family leaves, I, or I will leave family, happens at four. Um, family can turn on you and spank you, that happens at five. A family can die and, and go away, that happens at eight. Friends and family can disappear, that's what happens as we start to move around. I lose friends, I lose neighborhoods, I lose schools. Right, we go back and we see the family, and you know, it, it, and they're all happy to see us. But then we leave and we go back to Indiana, and they're in Oklahoma. And because we don't have cell phones and we can't text, right now, all of a sudden, it's like you're not. If you're an 11 year old, you're not getting on the phone and talking to your 12 year old cousin. That's just not something kids do. So now it's like, oh, great, we can go back and visit them, but we can't be with them. We can't be around those that we love. More trauma. Is that the column that supports the addiction? Or are all these columns just being slid into the skyscraper of my life, and eventually enough of them um, are traumatic, enough of them are negative or bad, perceived that way, again, subjective perspective of my mind, perceived as bad, and then when my parents announced their divorce at 18, and that's the, the final straw, right? Left, left, you know, left my family at four, got switched at five. I got spanked many times. I got 10 of those I could bring up. So knowing that punishment comes if I let my father or mother down, then we move around a lot. So I think that friends are expendable. I don't have long lasting relationships with any of them. So I think that uh, I come up with this belief system that everybody leaves, especially me. Right. Then, you know, mom has all these different health scares throughout my entire childhood where she almost dies. And then ultimately she chooses to leave. She doesn't leave this planet, but instead she leaves my life and goes down to Florida and starts up a whole nother life while I'm in college. Right. I'm emotionally unintelligent. I don't know how to handle these emotions that I feel. And then next thing you know, some people hand me a joint. Some people hand me some acid. Some people hand me some cocaine. And before you know it, I'm so tired of not having friends and not feeling like I have a social circle and not feeling like I belong anywhere. And the easiest social circle to join is the addiction one. Right. With a childhood like that, how can I not become an addict? Aha. But that's the thing. There are other people with similar childhoods who went off and got straight A's and became doctors or lawyers or whatever. And they would say, well, with a childhood like that, how could I not become this? And that's the crux of this entire thing. This programming that's happening to us, right? It's affecting us however it's affected us. And if we want to use our own mind for us rather than against us. It's understanding that this programming that has led us to a life of addiction has been happening for as long as we can remember and beyond what we can remember because the unconscious mind remembers everything, but it doesn't necessarily um, show us what it remembers. 
Somebody might be like, remember that time when we were six years old and we got the brand new bikes and we rode them and then we saw that snake and the snake chases down the road? You might have totally forgotten that moment until somebody brings it up. And then you're like, oh my God, I totally remember that now. How did I forget it? We didn't necessarily forget it because it was always in the unconscious mind, but just no one had ever reminded you of it. So why would you remember it? I have tons of these because I've moved around so much that when I go and talk to an old friend on Facebook, they'll, they'll bring something up and I'll be like, wow, man, I had no, no recollection of that. But now that you remind me of it, I can remember what color shirt I was wearing. Because the unconscious mind keeps everything. It's all part of our programming. And, it, and it's happening from the get-go. But it's, it's, look at it like this. As a baby, you cry and maybe you get love or maybe you get hate. And you don't know which one is which, but your your own baby brain, at best it can, is it starts to notice these micro facial expressions. Are you getting smiles? Are you getting scorn? Do your parents' eyes squint? Do they get bigger? And we start attaching meaning to this stuff. Right? So then you realize, okay, well, if I cry, I get love. Or or maybe if I cry, my parents' face shows a sign of annoyance. Therefore you cry less. All right to get the facial recognition of happy or at least acceptance, right? When you're hungry, you cry, maybe you get food. Or maybe you cry and you get placed in the crib and, you're get, and you get ignored. And that creates some level of programming, right? When you show love, does it get rejected or accepted? That creates more programming. This programming is happening at this micro level, like a computer. And I've gotten pushback that when I try to talk about us like we're computers, but it's just the easiest way to bring this into more of a concrete structural conversation. So so when we think about this programming, that you are going to, you're going to reprogram yourself from an addict into someone in addiction recovery. Think of the programming much like you would, and if you've never worked with websites, I'll make this super simple. Some reprogramming happens, and when it does, it can change the entire website. And other reprogramming happens, and it just changes one particular area, a row, a section, a module, right, of of a website. So what's what's a good way of breaking this down so that it seems less okay you can you there, we all understand that there can be bugs in software we understand why we get updates on our cell phone right to fix bugs and you're thinking well why is this bug there there wasn't you know you you fixed all the bugs and then the next month there's more bugs because the the computer program is constantly running so it's also taking in information and some of that information comes out and it starts to screw with stuff Right, A website can look great, and then somebody else on the platform that you've got the website on could change something on their end, and it completely screws up your website. Much like your brain is constantly taking in information, so new information is being put in, and once in a while, it can create a bug. So whereas you can go in, and you can start to reprogram yourself, and some of the things that you change will completely change your entire life. Much like a website, you can go in, and you can change a couple words, and the entire color of the website, the entire layout of the website changes. The font being used on the website changes throughout. That's something that you change and it has massive repercussions throughout your entire life. That's like taking alcohol out. When you take alcohol out, much like a website, you can't just strip it of color. You can't strip it of a layout. You can't strip it of a font. Those things need to be there. So when you take the um, alcohol or the drugs or the sugar or the porn or the sex or the gambling, when you take that out, something has to fill the void. 
You don't just take something so massive out of your life and just naturally expect that it'll take care of itself. And then your whole website looks like shit, right? I mean, again, it's like the whole thing is left justified or like the whole thing is just white, right? It doesn't work that way. You have to put something back in. So then what are you going to start to put back in? When I hear people talking about wanting instant gratification with their sobriety and recovery, I, I, I laugh. I'm just like, that's not how this is going to work. It took years and years and years of various forms of programming to lead you to addiction. It's going to take years and years and years for you to work your way out of that addiction mindset, of that programming. Obviously, we know it's possible because millions of people have done it before us, so we know it's not impossible. What we have to seek for ourselves is knowing how to do it for ourselves. For me, I got into physical fitness. I got into health. I got into, you know, sometimes I'm so into it, I'm weighing my food. Is that another way that my OCD, I've never been diagnosed, but I get a little obsessive about things. I know, right? Is Is that a way that my obsessive compulsiveness shows up? Or according to people who are who do physical fitness for a living, knowing the, how much calories you're putting in and how much calories you're putting out is the responsible way to have an extremely fit body. That's their subjective perspective. Other people have extremely fit bodies and they don't weigh their food. right? But my mind likes numbers. My mind likes controlling chaos. So my mind likes to add things up and put them into the MyFitnessPal app. Either way, when I took addiction out, I put physical fitness in. But to me, that wasn't. It still wasn't enough. I needed other things because this addiction it permeated every single facet of my life. It was everywhere. The roots of my addiction, the the branches of my addiction, touched every aspect of my life. So then, all of a sudden, every aspect of my life had to get its opportunity in the spotlight to say, okay, well, now addiction isn't involved in my emotional intelligence anymore. What am I going to do to fill that void? Well, I'm going to read and I'm going to learn new things and, and new ways of handling my emotional upheavals. And then I'm going to go out and I'm going to apply those and then I'm going to see if that worked and I'm going to keep trying and trying and trying until I get my desired result. Physical fitness, sure. I can follow a program. After three months, did I get what I wanted out of it? Sure, I'm in a better position than I was three months ago when I started. But did it give me exactly what I wanted? Which, again, was probably an impossibility to ever live up to your own ideas in your head of what you think you'll achieve. But I'm closer. So now let's reevaluate and let's apply a different strategy. With my mental acuity and my mental sharpness, right? I, I, my, my brain is important to me, so I want to read and bring new things in. I want to have adventures. Okay, well, adventures can be anything. Adventures could be going to the mall or it could be going to a park and watching ducks fight over algae. Back in the day, I would have done that with a bottle of vodka in my backpack disguised as a bottle of water. Well, now I go to these places and I get to be sober and it's a blessing. Right, but still, that's how far the branches of my addiction went. There was nothing that I did where there wasn't some vodka somewhere hidden in my car or in my backpack around me, just so I could have a little nip nip in case I needed one. So now I had to reprogram that. Right? What about my spirituality, my values, my beliefs, my opinions, my integrity, humility, my gratitude? All of those things had been affected by my addiction, so now I had to work on those. I don't want, I mean, it would be my prime concern here if I somehow made all of this seem so humongous that you didn't even know how to begin. And that 
that could be something that you felt before this conversation, regardless, because you realize how much addiction permeated into your life, and now you're seeking a way of, of moving past that. You heal from it, and you move on, and you start to create a life from this new version of yourself. When you, you can change some things, like when you go to the gym, that's going to massively change your life. Right, you're going to start to drink more water. You're going to start to want to eat more healthily. You're you're going to you're going to want to do more steps, and then you know you're going to want to go outside and you're going to do some hikes. And these may have been things that you never did before. That's changing the color, the layout, the font of the website. Other things are will only fix in certain little areas, right? The way that you used to uh, talk with your children or your partner. For me, you know, it was the way like I interacted, you know, with my sister, you know, before we would talk about the hilarity of our addiction. And now we talk about the way that we're growing our businesses, right? The addiction in that one particular area of my life of this skyscraper, I'm re, uh, I'm redecorating, uh, you know, massive reconstruction of one of my floors. One of my floors of my skyscraper is my relationship with my sister. Every single person you have in your life can be uh, their own floor. Maybe maybe at work, everyone's just sort of acquaintances, so that one floor of your skyscraper is just your acquaintances at work. But when you got sober, you began to change the way you interacted with them. They were used to one way of interaction, now you're bringing a new way of interaction. So they too are going to have to get used to something. They too are going to have to remodel their skyscraper around the way they interact with you. And they may not even realize that, they, that they're doing it, let alone that they, they might not think it's, they even have to. They may think, oh, good, you're sober. Great, that's whatever. That's your life. But it's going to change the way you interact with them. And ultimately, they will inadvertently have to remodel their floor based around you, or at least the way they interact with you. Right? You're doing this too. We can learn to shift our anxiety around one area where where there is the potential to shift it in all areas, right? This is what I'm talking about, about making a choice and having it massively change. Right, You can shift your anxiety you have around your addiction recovery and feel more confident in it, and that will permeate to every area of your life, you being able to learn to shift your anxiety. So how do we bridge this change from one area to the next? We want to show you, we, right, I want to help you understand that these pictures you have in your mind around these traumatic moments, that you think, this is absolutely what caused this addiction in my life. It was just a series of events that built on top of one another. Not one of them actually became the support system for your addiction. It just became the overall the overall system around your addiction. So use your brain for you, not against you. Understand that this programming has been happening. Understand that cravings will come. Understand that you could be you know, smashing it on your physical health, but then all of a sudden an emotionally upheaval moment happens and you feel compelled to go back to using. But you're like, man, everything was great yesterday, and then I have this emotionally, you know, moment that 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 um, that triggers this traumatic event that from my childhood or from a previous moment in my life, and now all of a sudden I feel like I'm right back to where I started. Well, you're not back to where you started because you've already journeyed so far. Just deciding that one day you won't use again is already starting the journey toward addiction recovery. When you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, that's something that your mind just is like, fuck this, man. I am out. I cannot do this anymore. It is leading me in the same place. 
But we hold on to these traumatic moments as being the reason instead of seeing them as an entire picture of what has happened. So that when we go back and we start to clean this up and we start to heal through it, we realize that the more we heal, it's going to seem a little weird at first because it's like, great, I, I healed this traumatic moment of leaving my family at four years old. And as soon as I did that, 10 other traumatic moments showed up. Well, the traumatic moment of, of leaving my family at four was so big, I couldn't see the other ones behind it. As soon as I did, oh my goodness, it's when I, you know, we moved from Mary Evelyn Castle to Craig Middle School. Oh, and then there was another one when I went from Craig Middle School to Mount Healthy. Oh, there's another one from Mount Healthy to Central. And there's another one from Central to, to, to Mainland. And there's another one from Mainland to Columbus, North. Oh my goodness, I didn't even realize all these traumatic events were there because they were all hidden behind the initial traumatic event of leaving my family. Even though all those other ones had something to do with leaving people, this one around my family was blocking the others. Okay, let's go in and heal those. Because each one healed is another step toward our best self in addiction recovery. When you shift the anxiety you have around your family, it will shift the way you, you feel about anxiety at work or in your own life or with your own body. Right. Shame, grief, guilt, fear, these are about things that we've experienced in the past, and, the, and then we get ourselves all worked up about what we think we could have done in, in the future. Fear runs all of that, just like fear runs anxiety and stress when we think about the future. So we've got all this shame and, and this grief and this guilt from our past, and we spin around on it over and over and over and over and over again, further cementing it as the foundation for the, the version of ourselves that we are today. So when we go to clean it all up within sobriety and a recovery, we have to understand that we have been spiraling on this stuff for years. It is base code at this point. And then we start to think about our future and we get full of anxiety and stress because we're trying to control chaos that hasn't even occurred yet. Trying to, trying to control chaos on a journey. It's, it's, what the frick? Are you kidding me? It's like, trying to, it's like being worried about the weather in Nebraska when you're in Arizona. Let's, let's worry about the weather when we get to Nebraska, when we're in Nebraska. Because right now we're nowhere near it. So who knows what the weather will be like when we get there in two weeks. It's the same way with your own life. Freaking out and worrying about things that are months off in advance is stopping you from being present in your moment now and being able to drastically affect your life in the moment. Because this is the only time you have to change diddly squat. Nothing can be changed outside of the now. As we begin to dive deeper into this programming that's happening, one of the reasons that I'm, I'm so adamant about introducing this stuff to you, which it can sound heady. It can, it, it, can, it can be a lot to take in because we might just think, oh, well, things happened and I'm an addict and now things will happen and I'll be sober. Well, okay, sure. That's in the layman's way of putting it. Sure. Things happened. I was an alcoholic. Things happened. I'm not an alcoholic. Okay. I mean, great. That's sort of like saying, you know, um, you know pour milk onto cereal and now I have a bowl of cereal. But all the ingredients that it took to make the milk and it took to make the cereal and it took to make the bowl and it took to make the spoon, all of those things had to occur in order to bring us to this moment of eating the cereal. All of these things have occurred in your life to bring you to this moment of you deciding that it's time to be sober. So when we, when we decide we're going to now shift our lives from addiction into sobriety, we have to realize that there are going to be thousands of things that we're going to ultimately need to work on. 
because our addiction permeated into every aspect of our lives. That's a blessing. That to me, that gets me so excited because it gives me it gives me something to focus on. There's always something I could be doing. Today I might go take a five thousand step walk around nature and look for squirrels. Or I'm dying to see the albino squirrel again. Right back in the day, I wouldn't have cared about doing ten thousand steps, let alone seeing an albino squirrel. I might have sat out on the lawn and just stared off into space, getting wasted. But I wouldn't have been observant of my world around me. Not like I am now. And so, if you really care a lot about this programming, and maybe I could have said this at the beginning to further fire you up, it's the why. When you want to understand the why you became an addict, the why that you were mired in this addiction for so long, it's the programming. It's all of these things added up. And to really understand the whys, I believe it's, it's important to understand the how. How does your mind take in external information and create these movies, these images, these sights and sounds in your head that ultimately become the life that you lead, that you believe led you to addiction, while for other people, it led them to success? Other people saw it as a reason to go off and get great grades and become you know, a CEO. And meanwhile, you saw it as, a, as, as trauma and you turned it into addiction. Everybody's brains programmed differently. But understanding the processes, understanding the way that this is happening so that you can visualize it, so you can say, oh, okay, well, back in the day, I took in this information this way. Now I'd like to take it in another way so that I can walk away with a good feeling rather than a bad feeling. This is the kind of stuff that we talk about in The Hub. The Hub was created mainly to make these shows more succinct. I can go off. I can ramble. I can can start to try to create pictures in your mind that you will all have a connection to. And it's difficult because there's thousands of you and you all have different backgrounds. You all have different versions of your of yourself on any given day that's listening to this. So I can come up with 5,000 hypotheticals and still leave yours out. Whereas in the hub, I just make it very like I, I created slides. I created workbooks. I created activities. None of the videos are longer than 15, 20 minutes. Okay, shouldn't have said none because there's one that's 45 minutes, but that's the that's the outlier. All the rest of them are very short. They're very to the point. They explain very clearly how your mind is processing the world around it and it's turning it into your memories. Now, this is just the first course. The next ones are going to be about emotional intelligence or how to harness the six human needs in order to flip those towards addiction recovery rather than having them anchor you in addiction like they have for the last umpteen years. Each month, I'm going to release a new course that's going to be specifically around a topic that I know is going to help you um, better organize your addiction recovery journey. Now, the site wasn't created specifically to only help those in addiction recovery. It's actually for everybody. But you're going to be, lo- you're going, to be going over there and working on it through the lens of addiction recovery because that's how you found me. That's how you found this show. That's how you've been listening to this material for 157 episodes. So you're going to take it in and you might say, oh my goodness, this is actually going to help me in my career. Or this is going to help me talk to my kids. Or this is going to help me take on a new hobby. Awesome. That's the point. The point is for you to understand that your mind is this an intricate machine that we don't even understand. We know more about space than we do about the oceans. And we know more about space and the oceans than we do our own mind. We don't understand why the unconscious mind has the motives it has. We don't, we don't fully... Uh, 
understand why somebody can experience one thing and have a cognitive bias to think of it as good while somebody else had a bias to think that it was bad. We're not really sure why any of that stuff happens, and that's the beauty of the human experience. We're so unique that it just, at some point, it's like, you know what? It doesn't need to make sense. Like Neil deGrasse Tyson once said about the Big Bang, you know what? It doesn't need to make sense. I don't need to have the answers for how it started, why it started. I just, I don't. But I know what it created. And that's what I'm going to focus on, is the world and the universe and the galaxies that it created when it happened. We don't necessarily have to know as much as we would like to. And maybe we find out when we get to the other side. Maybe the heavenly bodies up there will finally say, this is what's been going on the whole time. I don't want to, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, and, I'm not, I'm, and I don't want to bank on that. I'm just going to enjoy the here and now. Today, I am someone with over five years of active long-term recovery. I am not as emotionally intelligent as I would prefer, so I work on it every single day. I, every single day, my body is a constant growth. I'm constantly building it. I'm eating healthy. I'm, I'm doing the things that will create a strong body that I can be able to go off and be insanely active at 80. I'm reading really cool stuff all of the time because I want to learn new things. I want to enjoy new things. I, I want I want to be curious about the world, and I want to bring this stuff into my awareness, and I want to see where it goes. Maybe I'll practice the ukulele today. Maybe I'll play some harmonica. Maybe I'll go outside and stare into trees looking for the albino squirrel. It's all part of keeping myself mentally sharp. And when it comes to my spirituality, not necessarily based in religion, but definitely based in you know, my own integrity, morals, beliefs, values, all of these things are, they're masterful, masterful things to work on. Join the hub. Come learn how these five senses are being run through the processes and filters, and they're creating these images in your mind that have become the programming that is, that has dictated your life. Understand how you can reverse engineer it and actually shift the way that you've seen your life in your head to a more desirable quote-unquote, better way of experiencing your memories. This hasn't just been a long sales pitch for the hub. Because I just, I I honestly, I I think that if you're in a place where you've always wondered why you were mired in addiction for so long, I'm going to start giving you awesome answers over there in a much more succinct way where you, it's actually active. It's it's not passive. It's meant to become a conversation between us, not just a monologue from me to you. So one day we're going to have, start having meetings in there and it's going to be fantastic. And all of you who've ever wanted to just have an opportunity to talk with me and, and learn more about this and, and bring your opinions in, we're going to create a, a forum for that. But when I started to think about the best episodes to follow up, that big long one I just put out about the hub, I thought, you know, so many people ask me why they did stuff. And I say, okay, well, let's break down how your brain creates your world inside your head because it's inside this process that all of the programming happened. And some people are like, well, uh, you know, my mom died or this traumatic thing happened or that traumatic thing happened. That's why I'm an addict. And I'm like, "Ah, it's not as simple as that because it's code built upon code built upon code. So we just need to start going through the code and and rewriting it, fixing the bugs, right? And just because you fix a bug doesn't mean it's permanently fixed. You've got to apply it each and every day. You've got to be mindful of the things that you're seeking to, to improve in your life. And you have to turn that improvement, that work you do every single day, you have to turn it into a habit in order for it to stick. And then the longer you do it, the more it becomes a habit. And eventually, it just becomes who you are. It just becomes a new identity that you have. 
one of my tribal members once mentioned to me, he's like, Jesse, you'll have quotes that you'll just talk about for 20, 30 episodes. And then out of nowhere, you just stop bringing them up. I've determined that it's because I've habituated them. I've taken certain thoughts, certain lessons I've taught you, and I'll bring them up over and over and over and over and over again for your benefit and mine, my benefit too. And then once my unconscious mind has been like, okay, I got it. I got it. This is how we're going to live our lives now. I just unconsciously stopped talking about it as much. It's one of the reasons I'm going back through all my old episodes. I can't wait to learn from myself what I was thinking and 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 applying back then to see how I can apply it and think about it differently now from a whole different version of myself. <laughs> think about how awesome that is. I get to learn from past Jesse how present Jesse can help future Jesse. This is going to be amazing. You can also be learning from past you to help present you create a better life for future you. Is the hub a place to do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not necessarily all centered around recovery. You're going to figure out ways for it to improve your recovery, yes. But this site goes well beyond that. It has no choice but to because our minds go well beyond just shifting around our addiction recovery and making that better. Because if all we focused on every single day was our addiction recovery, we'd be missing out on opportunities all around us to improve other areas of our lives. It's in that improving of other areas of our lives that it actually solidifies our addiction recovery. Everything touches everything. It's like Avatar the movie. Everything is connected. Your programming was built upon programming, built upon programming. So now one traumatic moment became the foundation for your addiction. It absolutely could have become a pillar. It could have become one of the it could be it could become one of these columns that's holding up your skyscraper. So let's go down there. Let's 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 tinker with that column. Let's rejuvenate it. Let's remodel it. So all of a sudden, the column that was once, you know, part of the structure of your addiction becomes the structure and and the strength of your sobriety and recovery. Use your mind for you, not against you. It's in that power to understand that everything about you has the ability to be changed. That's where the strength is. Because as soon as you know it can be changed, then you can start going about changing it. And that, that is the growth mindset that you want to embrace in your sobriety and recovery journey. All right, my friends, as always, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy. I'm not really sure this episode was any less confusing. Um, It's so much easier to teach this stuff in person or on Zoom. It's just so much easier. That's why I created the hub. There's slides, there's workbooks, there's ways of walking all of us through this with visuals, not just auditory. You really need to be able to see this diagram to be able to see how your mind has been programming you. Uh, you need to work your way through the workbook so that you can start asking yourself, you know, what what did I see as negative that I could now uh, embrace as positive? Where can I take a lesson and a teaching from a traumatic moment? and leave the trauma and the sadness in the past and bring the lesson and the teaching up and then use that as a strength. Anything that's happened to you can be used as a strength. And I, and I swear it is my purpose in life to show you how that can be done and achieved in your own mind. That's where the hub exists. Go to jessemogul.com forward slash the hub. Um, check out, I created a page that will tell you more about it. There's opportunities to join right then and there. You can go to Instagram and find the link to, um, I haven't done it on the other social media channels, but I will, but absolutely on Instagram or just go to jessemogul.com forward slash the hub. Okay, now I'll finish my ending. 
Inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the best day of our lives when we wake up sober. Shout out to Sunshine Glow On. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye. 